Got it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, with uh, the COP, I want to start with COP uh, 27. Um, last night, uh, they were still meeting and uh, they still hadn't issued their communique. And um, today, as I thought, I'd wake up and they would issue a communique and they have. Uh, but in terms of the details, they seem to be extraordinarily thin and, um, quite frankly, from what I've read, utterly, utterly um, inadequate. So as, as I understand it, and this is from a very quick read, uh, as I said this morning, um, no commitment to um, finish with coal, no commitment to run down fossil fuels and uh, end the consumption of uh, fossil fuels. They have agreed, you'll be delighted to learn, uh, what's it called, loss and damage. They've come up with a loss and damage fund, except from what I understand, again, I could be wrong, but from what I understand, they haven't agreed who pays into it and they haven't agreed who, who, who gets from it. So um, is China gonna be contributing uh, to this fund as the world's largest emitter of uh, CO2 uh, gases, which isn't surprising given they got a billion uh, people. Or on the other hand, is it going to be receiving funds? Uh, because after all, it's only industrialized uh, recently, where if we look at Britain and the United States, they've been uh, putting out uh, CO2 and other um, greenhouse gases for well, well, uh, over uh, a century. Well, I don't know, you don't know, I think you don't know. Um, so that's an open-ended uh, uh, question, something to argue um, um, on about. Uh, it is interesting, on the other hand, just to look, and again I, again, I might be totally misjudging this, looking at the demonstrations uh, in favor of a, a, a loss and damage fund in uh, Egypt, the people demonstrating look very well manicured and turned out, uh, as far as I can see. I, I, I think that the Sisi government thoroughly approves of uh, a protest uh, whereby the Sisi government uh, gets uh, loss and damage uh, compensation, uh, no doubt to um, you know buy another luxury house or a luxury yacht or, or whatever else uh, Sisi and his immediate circle uh, are into. Um, also, uh, we are told by uh, Alec, Alec Sharma, the uh, non-cabinet member in the British government now, who's responsible, not responsible for climate change, I hasten to add, but responsible for the fight against uh, climate change. He says that the 1.5 degrees centigrade target uh, to keep uh, temperatures uh, uh, down uh, to 1.5% um, or below um, is hanging by a thread or words to those effects. Um, well, I'm not an expert, but it does seem to me that it ain't hanging by a thread, that it's gone. And, um, you know, given that we were meant to be into a situation of massive reductions of um, CO2 uh, emissions, um, what we've actually seen um, is a continued rise um, so my uh, fear is that uh, we will reach 1.5 degrees centigrade, um, maybe uh, at the end of this decade, maybe shortly after. And then it looks like, at least as things stand at the moment, uh, that it will be up uh, and beyond uh, that. So the upper limit that they've set, that things cannot go uh, beyond, is two degrees centigrade. Uh, this is above, obviously, um, pre-industrial um, um, temperature um, averages. So you know, roughly speaking, 1850 or, or, or thereabouts. There um, now, of course, what that means isn't that um, things get less chilly in Britain and um, a little bit hotter uh, in the tropics. What we're talking about um, is the distinct possibility of some qualitative shift um, in the climate. 
Um, so that doesn't just mean more severe weather. It could mean whole systems uh, switching off or other systems um, switching on, uh, which would be extraordinarily uh, disruptive. So again, this is me just um, speculating. Uh, you could, for example, have a situation of where the US wheat belt uh, turns to desert. It's quite conceivable. You could have a situation of where the Gulf Stream, which keeps Britain uh, mild um, you know, throughout the year, both in summers, uh, but also in winters, that, that, that could switch off. Um, and you could have uh, perhaps uh, temperature here because we were on the same uh, latitude as uh, Labrador. Anyone who knows Labrador uh, will know what I mean. So we're not talking about something uh, minor here. We are talking about something uh, that would be extraordinarily uh, disruptive uh, to the global economy and to human life um, um, on uh, the planet. So uh, in terms of uh, COP27, you know, you, you have to agree with uh, most, most commentators and say that it's a, a failure. It's not surprising, though, that it's a, a failure. Uh, and that is simply that, um, you know, the, the governments of the world are committed to the expansion of capital. Uh, they're committed to the market, they're committed to growth, um, and growth, remember, not on the basis of need, but growth for the sake of growth, growth uh, in order to produce more uh, capital. That's the nature uh, of uh, the capitalist uh, system. Anyway, I'm going to limit my remarks on COP27 uh, to that and move then uh, to James Cleverly, um, I have to say that we're seeing so many different ministers. You, you tell me who James Cleverly is, and I go, oh, he was a minute or is a minute. He's the foreign uh, minister this week, and uh, he's just been uh, talking about Iran and what a threat Iran uh, represents to the world. And uh, he's been saying that Iran is spreading bloodshed uh, around the world. So I have to admit, when I read that, I. I burst out laughing. I'm not saying uh, that the Iranian regime is nice. I'm not saying it's friendly to democracy or anything like that. But the idea uh, that it's Iran uh, that's the sort of main agent of uh, spreading chaos throughout the planet, all I need to do is think about the Middle East and I go, okay, right, Yemen. Well, I know that Iran has some sort of relationship with these so-called Houthi uh, uh, rebels, but you know, all, all you need to do is look at the um, the politics of Yemen. Um, who created South Yemen? Who who used uh, Aden as a port? Who had it as a colony? In you know, in in my memory, it was Britain. Who's supplying that other uh, protagonist in this particular conflict with you know highly sophisticated equipment? Well, it's the United States and Britain. Who created um, Saudi Arabia? Who, who, who drew the present Middle East? Well, it's clearly, you know, Anglo-French uh, uh, imperialism taking over from the Ottoman um, Empire and then uh, really being replaced uh, by, by the United States, you know, after World War II. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I'm thinking of the Yemen. I'm thinking of Syria. You know, how did that particular conflict get going? Was it Iran uh, that tried to initiate the overthrow of the Assad government? Not according to my memory. Who was financing um, these freedom fighters called uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic State? I think it was the Gulf states. Who knew all about it? I think it could possibly have been America and Britain. Do you remember David Cameron and his... Uh, was it Syrian Free Army, who they supplied a load of weapons to, who they instantly gave them away to Al-Qaeda and IS, Ur, who promoted the white helmets as gallant rescue, you know, you know, Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. We then moved to Iraq. Well, that was a brilliant operation, of course, carried out. Well, a little bit of help from Iran. It's true. They gave them some intelligence 
both when it came to Afghanistan and Iraq. But who the hell did the job? Well, it was the United States and it's uh, Rottweiler uh, Britain. That's the reality um, of it. And if you want to go back, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, who the hell overthrew uh, the PDPA uh, government? Clearly, uh, that was an operation, a Saudi, US, Pakistan um, operation. So no one's trying to whitewash uh, Iran. But clearly what we're doing now um, is that we're basically lining Iran up, aren't we, uh, for some sort of regime change. It's no longer the negotiations uh, over the nuclear uh, question. Clearly what's going on internationally and what's going on in Iran itself uh, is seen as uh, uh, too good an opportunity uh, to miss. Um, okay. In Iran itself, uh, I'm told that amongst the elite, there's, uh, there's basically two sides, and that's the denialists who uh, look around and don't see any demonstrations, don't see any, um, you know, uh, discontent. And if they do see it, uh, this is the work of uh, Israel. This is the work of Saudi Arabia. This is the work of uh, the United States. And those that do recognize, actually, that there's widespread and deep discontent and uh, don't think that the answer is simply shooting uh, people and locking them up. And at the moment, it seems that the denialists are in the upper hand. But the fact that the ruling elite is split uh, is, of course, of the greatest uh, significance. You know, I, I think it was Lenin, wasn't it, that defined a revolutionary situation as uh, not just um, those below refusing to be ruled in the old way, and that clearly exists uh, in Iran today, but also that the rulers themselves can no longer rule in the old way. Well, well they're trying, they're shooting people, they're arresting people, it's not working, and therefore, yes, this division uh, between the denialists and those that uh, want to do some sort of concessions uh, uh, to the masses, uh, this is of high significance. But of course, it's not just a, an Iranian question. This is, a, this, is, this is seen as an opportunity uh, by Israel, by Saudi Arabia, crucially, of course, uh, uh, by uh, the United uh, States. Um, just a couple of other things on Iran. I'm told um, that in spite of the lack of uh, coverage in the Western media, and that has struck me over the last week or, or, or two, that protests continue. I'm also told that uh, Iran's uh, still workers uh, are coming out um, uh, on strike. And of course, what we're talking about um, is going to be not simply economics. Uh, it's not about pay. It's not about conditions. They, those will be factors. It's about politics. So this is a, a, a big and important development. And also just finally um, on that, I'm sure you'll join with me in mourning the, the fact that uh, uh, people in Iran have burnt down Ayatollah, Ayatollah's, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's house, which has been serving as a museum uh, for the butcher. Um, I must admit that that uh, did uh, please me. Okay, moving on. Kherson, um, interesting. Um, I was speculating, I think, a few weeks ago, and that's obviously the line that uh, the Russian army, the Russian armed forces were feeding the media, uh, that uh, Russia was going to defend Kherson in the same sort of way that the Soviet army defended Stalingrad or Leningrad or Moscow in World War uh, two and you know you 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 read anything um, by any armchair general, let alone a a real live uh, general, and the worst um, fighting um, they want to do everything to avoid, and that is street by street urban uh, warfare. Uh, people you know can bury themselves underground; they can come up through the sewers. Uh, you lose a huge number of people. Your normal uh, superiority in weapons don't work in the same way in urban uh, areas, so you do your best to uh, avoid them. So we were fed this line, and um, 
what seems to have happened is that uh, the Russian army, against all form, I have to say, has carried out um, a spectacularly successful evacuation. Um, I was reading in uh, the Western media and the Ukrainian media, uh, you know, about uh, soldiers being left behind and we're talking about injured people or whatever it happens to be, vast piles of uh, equipment and all the rest of it. And when I saw, and you know, sometimes they say, don't they, what's it? One picture is worth a thousand words. And I saw a particular set of pictures by a photojournalist looking at what the Russians had left behind. And I just went, well, they haven't left anything behind then, have they? Because what they were showing is a pile of, you know, maybe 30, um, you know, um, howitzer uh, shells or there's a, 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 an empty box of, of ammunition. And seriously, it was stuff like that. So it was the detritus of war that they left behind. They didn't leave behind vast quantities of anything. Um, so this is just a load of rubbish. And so what they've managed to do, remember, this is without any bridges in operation, uh, from my understanding, what they've managed to do is instead of reinforcing uh, their army in Kherson, they've managed to get their army out in order, um, you know, without any uh, major losses. Uh, so it's a defeat, uh, but not not um, the sort of defeat that uh, Russia inflicted on, for example, uh, Ukraine forces in Mariupol. Um, so th this has been a successful withdrawal. Uh, we are now told, and again, trust very little that you hear uh, in terms of war reporting, but we are told that Russia is digging a defensive uh, line. So it's obviously got the natural a barrier of the Dnieper uh, uh, River, but they're, as I said, digging in uh, defensive lines. Um, meanwhile, we are told by uh, the deputy defense minister in Ukraine that the war will be all over uh, by spring. Uh, I have to say that I'm very skeptical about that. The only way, in my view, it can be over by spring is if there's regime change. Um, in the Kremlin uh, by spring, um, and maybe some new leadership, e including from the sort of KGB or ex-KGB uh, core, the FSB core, uh, will sue for peace or something like that. Um, I'm very sceptical um, uh, on that, simply because um, my expectation would be that uh, Ukraine and behind that, uh, the United States will be demanding uh, an unacceptable uh, peace off Russia. It's not just going to demand that Russia uh, withdraws from um, every inch of Ukrainian territory, and that would include uh, the Crimea. So that would mean you know, the loss of their um, historic port on the Black Sea, which gives them access uh, to the Dardanelles, which gives them access to the warm waters of the Mediterranean. Chances are, uh, that what they would be demanding is some sort of um, reparations and maybe uh, the sort of peace that uh, Germany uh, was forced to sign at Versailles, i.e. some limits on the size and nature of the Russian armed forces. Um, I don't know, but that, that's, that's what I sort of gather uh, from at least US diplomats and certainly uh, the Ukrainian um, leadership. So, yes, you could get um, um, a change in president that must come eventually. We're all mortal. And that includes uh, Vladimir uh, Putin. Uh, but whether uh, Russia would find um, the sort of peace that would be offered by the United States acceptable, I'm very skeptical uh, uh, about. Um, so, yes, at the present, what it looks like is Russia's digging in. Um, for the winter, and uh, then we see what the result looks like in spring. I personally, I mean, I could be totally wrong. Um, I don't see um, Ukraine launching a major offensive in the middle of uh, uh, a winter, which is not only cold, it also turns the countryside into mud. Uh, so you can't deliver your 
tanks, you can't deliver munitions, you can't deliver fuel. Um, anyway, that's just my uh, take on that. Um, we also have uh, Russia's war on um, Ukraine's grid. Uh, that's going very successfully from a Russian point of view. We've had um, Volensky um, call upon his citizens who presumably aren't engaged in the war or vital economic um, or military uh, activity to leave, uh, get out, go to Poland, go to Britain, go to Germany, wherever. Um, so clearly uh, things are going to be exceedingly grim um, in Ukraine for millions uh, of people uh, this winter. Um, it's also just worthwhile commenting on, um, again, another one of these stories that uh, I do, uh, you know, when they announced it, I had to uh, chuckle, if not guffaw, and that is that Sweden has discovered um, that the, um, the um, interruption, <laughs> the breakage in the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines was, hey, wait for it, was sabotage. Well, you know, <laughs> that's a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, I, I think we sort of knew that because what we had instantly that this thing uh, went off and not just in one place, but two pipelines in, I think, a number of different places is um, America accusing Russia of doing it and Russia accusing America to do it. So Sweden, thank you very much. What we want to know is who, not that it was sabotage, but who did it? Now, I'm have to say that as a member of uh, NATO, I'm not, well, a, is it, a, no, it is a member of uh, NATO. Is it a candidate member? I can't remember. Anyway, it's pro-NATO. Uh, that's the point. I don't trust anything that the Swedes will tell us. But all I'll say to, to you is this. I'm Vladimir Putin, and uh, my, my advisors come to me and they say, hey, Vlad, I've got this really good idea that will help us win the Ukraine war. What about blowing up our pipeline that supplies gas to Germany? Uh, that apparently is this, um, gives us the ability to blackmail Germany. And I'm Vlad, I go, that's a real good idea, Mikhail. Go ahead and do it. Doesn't work, I'm sorry, <laughs> it doesn't. And then we can pretend, uh, Mikhail says, President, we could pretend that the Americans did it. Oh, that's even better, Mikhail. Go ahead. We'll get the press release ready. Doesn't work. Sorry, it doesn't work. On the other hand, there's the CIA coming to Joe. I know he's slow, but they go to Joe and they say, Joe, we've got a really good idea that we can really bugger up the Germans and we can really bugger up the Russians. What about blowing up? Uh, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, which we vigorously opposed all these years and put one over on Russia and one over on Germany. And maybe we can even get the Brits to do it. That's been one of the stories uh, that's been doing the rounds. Even Joe might go, there's a good idea. Well, look, I don't know. I haven't got a, you know, a submersible. I haven't got the equipment. I haven't got any divers. But like common sense should always be our guide. Uh, in these ones. And I'm quite prepared to, you know, follow the Sherlock Holmes type method. You know, if you get rid of the, the probable, then you go for the improbable or something along those lines. So if you disprove America, if you disprove Britain, I'm at least prepared to get into. Maybe it was a Russian job, but even then I'll just go, wow, I didn't think Vladimir and the FSB and they couldn't be that stupid, but okay, you convince me sort of type idea, but it would take an awful lot to convince me, I have to say. And the fact that we had wall to wall uh, BBC propaganda on this one, I just think it shows that the BBC, I don't know what it's like in other countries, just takes us for fools. You know, it's like the assassination of uh, Durgin's um, daughter, wasn't it? This is an inside job by Russia. You go, no, it's probably Ukraine. That's the obvious explanation. Go for the obvious. If you show it's not Ukraine, then I'm prepared to, you know, listen to absurd uh, uh, theories. But no. Um, anyway, there you are. That's just my comment on that one. Just worthwhile noting. I don't know what significance uh, it, it is, but the 
confining of Alexander Navalny to solitary? Is this some sort of preemptive move that's associated with regime change? He's certainly, um, you know, pro-NATO, pro-West. He would be the preferred candidate, I would guess, uh, 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 of America. I don't know. So I'm just throwing it in uh, as at least as a possibility. Lastly, on that sort of following up on um, previous week's uh, uh, political uh, report, just this question of um, uh, our comrades in the Netherlands putting forward this motion to this socialist conference in Utrecht and viewing it as a victory when they said uh, that uh, we put forward a formulation along the lines of we do not support um, uh, capitalist uh, countries or, or governments um, and viewing this as some sort of victory uh, when uh, other comrades in the conference vote for it. Well, my own response to this is just look up what the um, socialist alternative politics uh, in the Netherlands say. Look up what uh, the Mandelite uh, Fourth International say. Uh, look up what uh, anti-capitalist resistance say. It's the British affiliate, what they say. Um, no, of course they don't come out and say, we support NATO. We support uh, capitalist governments. We support capitalism. Uh, usually opportunists uh, don't do uh, that. They, they do it, but they don't say it. Uh, they cover their opportunism with all sorts of socialist phrases. And uh, so, yes, in um, um, anti-capitalist resistance, you can read loads of examples. I was just reading Phil Hurst, um, of course, saying that what, they, what they're defending is Ukraine's right to self-determination. Of course they are. Uh, they're defending the Ukrainian people. They're not defending Ukrainian uh, capitalism or lining up with uh, NATO. And I do suspect somehow, and I, I need to go away and read some, some old books, um, that that was the case in World War uh, I as well. I've got behind me a book by Henry Hyman written, I think, in either 1915 or 16, Democracy and Socialism. You know, Henry Hyman was the leader of the Social Democratic Federation in Britain, took a pro-war uh, position. And from my memory of reading this uh, damn book, one thing that particularly struck me was his expression of solidarity with his dear comrades in Germany, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. All right. Uh, not the German right that was, of course, supporting the war effort. These were supporters of Prussian militarism. Of course, he supported Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Well, you know, so if, if, I, put, if I put forward a motion to the annual Easter conference of the Social Democratic Federation or the British Socialist Party, as it became, and expressed our solidarity with Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, I suspect the entire conference would vote for it. Well, of course they would, because we all oppose German <laughs> militarism. We all oppose Prussianism. The key question is, you know, what about our own capitalist class in a concrete war? Do we oppose that? Do we put Belgium self-determination or, or uh, defending plucky little Serbia at the center of our politics. So no, to me, uh, this was a formula not of principle. Well, of course, you can put it in a different context and it's a principle position, but in the context of a war in Ukraine now uh, that is supported by NATO, where Ukraine is acting as a proxy uh, for NATO, that's an opportunist uh, formulation. We need to address the war and the forces uh, that are engaged in the war uh, directly, and we need to be denouncing those, well, I won't call them comrades, those forces um, who purportedly uh, stand on the left, we need to be denouncing uh, those uh, uh, people and not putting forward unity uh, uh, with them. To me, that's like putting forward uh, the unity of um, the left in the miners' strike with people who oppose the miners' uh, strike. I, I just don't know how you can do it. It seems entirely the wrong message uh, uh, to me. It, 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 it's precisely an avoidance of a key question because we're not just dealing with a regional war, which would be important enough. We are dealing with the US grand strategy, uh, which might 
begin in that sense in Ukraine, but clearly involves uh, the subordination of Europe, particularly Germany. It involves regime change in Moscow, and it also involves uh, war plans of one form or another uh, with China. So the, the present situation has got more than a whiff of World War I about it. It's not going to be a rerun of World War I, uh, but that's the sort of level of conflict uh, that we're facing. And, and to bail out uh, from addressing that and making that central and being plain and honest uh, um, is unforgivable, uh, in my view. Okay, moving on. Um, Lovely headline in this week's socialist work, and not just in terms of um, journalism, but what we think sort of type stuff. And it says 500,000 strikers could crush the Tories. And I go, well, yeah, yeah it's uh, possible. Um, but OK, so what's going on in Britain is that we've just had the um, PCS, the Public um, and um, Commercial Services Union. Um, this is a left-wing led union, used to be right-wing, uh, but it's been left, uh, led by the left, I don't know, for a good decade now. Uh, so the general secretary is Mark Sawatka. Yes, Mark does come from an AWL social imperialist background, is a social imperialist to this day. Uh, nonetheless, what we've got um, is a vote by 100,000 uh, workers to stage strikes. These are going to be typical of, the, of Britain at the moment. These aren't all out strikes. Uh, they're one day here, one day there. So they're very much of the protest uh, strike character. But they join 400,000 other workers whose unions have got through the hoops and the hurdles put in the way of um, unions by the government, uh, not only this government, but going back to Thatcher. Um, of what it takes to have a legal strike in Britain. So we have 500,000 workers who have a legal sanction uh, to stage strikes. And those strikes can be one day or indefinite. Um, you don't have to have, um, it's not a vote just for uh, one day here and one day there. That, that's up to the leadership um, of the union. So we have the Communication Workers Union, um, which has um, been out on strike, will be out on strike again. We've got the rail unions, RMT, ASLEF, TUSA. Uh, we've got the union of um, university uh, workers. I, I missed them out in an earlier meeting and was ripped to pieces because I was surrounded by UCU uh, members. How did I forget them? They're, they're going to be out on strike. Uh, we're going to have uh, Unison workers. We're going to have Unite workers. Um, it's almost a question of, you know, who isn't going to be going out on strike uh, over the winter and into the spring. And what the comrades in the SWP are saying isn't uh, that uh, 500,000 workers uh, can bring down the Tories. They actually, in terms of what they're actually writing, as opposed to the headline that they've given the article, is much more modest and you cannot oppose it. And that's, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea to actually coordinate on one day uh, all these 500,000 workers on strike. And I'm going, well, of course it would. That's a very good idea, comrades. And uh, yeah, let's hold demonstrations. Let's have joint picket lines. And, you know, that would give workers a real sense of their potential power. Um, it's, you know, I, I don't know, again, other countries, but in Britain, for example, what is traditional is when you have a picket line, as we do over the road here, um, you know, like hospital workers go on strike. Uh, what we have is a tradition of, uh, of drivers always hooting. So hoot, hoot, hoot. Well, precisely what we need is, is big picket lines. Uh, we need big demonstrations. We need coordinated uh, action. And I thought the comrades had got it at the end of their article. Uh, um, and what they said is what we need is politics. Strikes, economic strikes aren't enough. I was going, at last, at last, the SWP, you know, the penny has dropped. And then, then comes the disappointment, because what we need to be is anti-racist. Oh, no, we, you know, no comrades. What we actually need is a situation of where we're developing a politics that are a genuine alternative. Because what we've had 
in Britain now is the mood music has been switched on by the establishment, basically um, lining up Keir Starmer uh, to be the next prime minister. So we've had uh, big interviews, you know, showing what a lovely human being Keir Starmer is in, in the Times, uh, for example, how he is brought up, you know, by working working class parents, how his mother was ill, you know, how he's the first in his family to go to university. But when he went to the palace to get knighted, it was the proudest moment his dad had ever had, blah, 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 blah. So nothing about his Pabloite past and uh, socialist alternatives, no uh, equivalent of Red Ed, Red Ed Miliband, nothing like that. He's our man. He's ahead in opinion polls. Uh, and of course, what the SWP and a lot of other comrades on the left have been doing is saying what we want is a general election now. That's something that's been echoed, of course, by Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner, his deputy, um, and, and swathes of the establishment uh, uh, press and media. But of course, you're not going to get a, a general election now. But the expectation is uh, that come 2024, uh, Labour uh, will get in. And what is also going on is that Labour front benches are going out onto the um, interview rounds uh, in terms of the electronic media and are basically saying that they would um, implement the cuts in public spending uh, that this Tory government has committed to. Because what this Tory government has done is up taxation, but put off the real savage cuts until after the next general election. And so it's kicking it down, which is, you could say, sensible economics, because Britain is almost certainly in recession. Uh, now unemployment will go up. Um, anyway, this basically um, kicks it over to the Labour Party. And instead of them being in the position that they were in 1997, when Tony Blair took over as prime minister from John Major and the finances weren't that bad. So committing to Tory spending plans in 1997 wasn't that much uh, of a sacrifice for voters. But now if you stick to Tory spending plans of savage cuts, um, what we're talking about uh, is not a slight increase in living standards. In Britain, the prediction is that the average wage in real terms, wage, will go down by something like 7%. And that is after uh, wage is either flatlining or going down slightly. That is the biggest drop, as I understand it, um, you know, in terms of when, since our statistics began, and I'm not quite sure when our statistics uh, began. Either way, uh, we're quite right, I think, to warn, not only did we get austerity one, under George Osborne, David Cameron's chancellor, not only have we got austerity too uh, with Hunt, Sunak's chancellor, we will presumably get austerity three, and that's what they tell us, so believe them, uh, under Rachel Reeves, presuming that she uh, is going to be um, Keir Starmer's chancellor. So yes, of course we need politics, but we need politics uh, that provide an alternative to Labourism. We need an alternative politics to capitalism. And that should be our job, not calling for a general election uh, when we know that Keir Starmer will win. Uh, no, we actually need to be warning about Keir Starmer. And although uh, the risk will be there, if we start to build an alternative that precisely a left alternative, a socialist alternative, a Marxist alternative, yes, risks the danger of uh, splitting uh, the vote and letting the Tories in. This was a dilemma that Lenin wrote about. Okay, it was a powerless Duma, uh, but he wrote uh, in terms of uh, Bolshevik election tactics, if this means letting in the black hundreds, which are the fascists uh, in Russia, so be it. The working class is stronger if we get a Bolshevik vote um, in spite of a, a black hundred dominated uh, government. We prefer the working class to be strong under a black hundred, uh, um, you know, um, Duma majority. Uh, that's the question. Uh, we need a, a working class alternative. And uh, the Conway is just saying anti-racism. Um, well, quite frankly, you know, 
go around uh, the Tory cabinet at the moment and ask how many people are in favour of racism. It's ridiculous. Okay, so yes, we need politics. We need more than anti-racism. We need a Marxist alternative uh, to Labourism. Okay. Um, last, lastly, but not least, um, I'm going to deal with the Qatar World Cup. Um, I know, I know, as I understand it, because I just looked at my phone before we started, that the football itself has started, and that will shift um, the whole focus, I think, uh, towards 22 men on a green pitch and uh, goals and where's England and what's happening to Wales and what's happening to Scotland and what's Brazil doing and all that sort of stuff. But uh, what we've had, of course, is all sorts of um, editorialising um, about uh, staging this World Cup. First of all, wasn't it in Russia and now in Qatar? And originally it was going to be in Qatar in summer. Um, like, ooh, that's hot. Um, but yeah, um, uh, this, this is a, I'm, I'm not trying to persecute socialist worker, but this is another headline that uh, got me laughing. Socialist worker, God bless them, um, have a front page, which includes uh, the World Cup, which I think is good. We have, of course, it on the whole front page, but they always they have a double page spread. And uh, this is the headline. I couldn't resist it. World Cup is being used to distract from dot, dot, dot. Big headline. How Britain create how Britain created repression in Qatar. Oh God. So they, they spent 250 billion apparently building stadiums and hotels and you know, you name it, in order to distract attention from Britain's role in creating repression in this country. Well, what are you talking about, socialist worker headline? Uh, writers. That's clearly not true. What the truth is, is that Qatar is an extraordinarily rich uh, fossil fuel uh, economy that could afford to spend 250 billion pounds, I think it was, by the way. I don't think it was dollars. But I, I stand to be corrected. Not that there's much difference between the two now nowadays. Either way, they spent 250 billion in order to use, to use the phrase sports wash themselves, right? And of course, what's happened, uh, at least with much of the press, is it hasn't worked, uh, at least thus far. It might, if I suspect, if England won the World Cup, um, no one would care. Um, but uh, leave that uh, improbability uh, aside. It's quite clear that what we've got uh, is an autocracy that thought it could uh, improve, buff up it, its image by spending a huge amount of money by putting on uh, the biggest tournament, I would guess, in the world, wouldn't it be other than the Olympics? Anyway, you know what I mean. It's the world's most popular sport and it will have a massive um, um, audience all the way around the world. So no, this isn't about uh, um, hiding Britain's uh, repressive role. I've already touched upon, clearly Britain uh, played a role in, in establishing these countries uh, this was part of the plan to break up the Ottoman Empire into little tiny manageable pieces. And those manageable pieces um, still remain. Some of them have got these neat lines. Was it Sykes Pickett? Pickett? I, you know, I cannot, can't quite remember what was that in the negotiations between France and uh, Britain uh, uh, at the end of World War One. But the rest are, are broken up into shakedoms and little other things like that. Saudi Arabia is a creation of British uh, diplomacy. Didn't they buy the Saudi Arabian royal family for a Rolls Royce or two or something like that? Um, anyway, um, what else have we had? Again, dominating the headlines is we've had the speech by Gianno Infantino, who's the new head of uh, FIFA. And uh, this has been uh, the cause of much, um, how should you put it, mockery. Uh, well, his history is a bit uh, bonkers, I readily confess, because what he said is instead of lecturing uh, places like uh, Qatar, uh, Europe, he said, because he's European, I think he comes from an Italian background, but was brought up in Germany. That's my understanding. Um, um, he says Europe should be apologizing for what it's done 
uh, to the rest of the world for the last 3,000 years and should carry on apologizing for the next 3,000 years. Well, I had a little think to myself, and uh, this is sort of you know me being very facetious, I readily admit, but uh, in terms of my London County Council history that I was taught when I was a wee little nipper uh, at uh, Church of England uh, uh, school, um, my ancestors or supposed ancestors would have been living in mud huts, uh, painting themselves with woad uh, at the time. Uh, so I don't know what I don't know what they had to do with inflicting terrible suffering um, on people. And the nearest I can get to the 3000 years, and it doesn't quite work even then, is uh, Alexander the Great um, invading um, what was then uh, Greco uh, Asia Minor, but getting all the way uh, to the heart of the Persian Empire, all the way to the borders of uh, the uh, in of India, got all the way to Indus. Uh, that's true, and it, it is interesting when you think about Alexander the Great, who's dressed up in the West as a bit of a hero, bit of a lad sort of idea. If you turn the tables and think what it was like to have a load of marauding marauding Macedonians coming. Uh, heading your way, you know, he burnt down cities and uh, he was that sort of, you know, at a whim. I fancy burning down that one, go and loot, go and rape sort of type idea. Uh, yeah, that was pretty uh, terrible. Um, and then you had the Roman Empire, yes, that uh, got all the way to Iraq. Uh, but no, what we're really talking about, isn't it, is modern Europe, uh, specifically really capitalist uh, Europe. Uh, that's that's the world conqueror. So we're dealing with, you know, um, Dutch, or should I say Netherlands capitalism? I'm never quite sure. Um, but anyway, Netherlands capitalism getting all the way, you know, to the Spice Islands, Indonesia. Um, we're dealing with then British capitalism uh, taking over India with the East India Company, dividing up Africa, slave trade. Uh, yeah, that's global uh, significance. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of uh, mockery uh, of this guy. And because he said, well, I, I understand what it feels like to be a migrant worker, black, gay. Well, he's been living in Qatar and presumably this is his attempt to defend Qatar. Um, I don't think we should defend Qatar, but what we should do in the same way with James Cle Cleverly is turn the mirror around. And when we look at uh, gay rights, when we look at women's rights, when we look at workers' rights, who's been fighting for the last 150 years under capitalism for women's rights, for gay rights, for workers' rights? Not the capitalists. It's not the, it's not the Tory party. It's not the Liberal uh, party. It's been the workers themselves. And that's true, uh, even when it comes to uh, gay rights. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether Mike McNair is here uh, anywhere today, uh, but for example, uh, gay rights became a really serious issue uh, with the miners' strike, with uh, you know, um, gays and lesbians um, for the miners, which was established by a guy called Mark Ashton, who was the general secretary of the Young Communist League, and that 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 won the labour movement to championing uh, uh, gay gay rights. Um, and that shifted opinion. But I can still remember, you know, Tories opposing, uh, uh, you know, legalization of gay sex at 21. It had to be in private. And apparently prosecutions after it was legalized went up. And I remember the Tories struggling uh, against equality, uh, you know, 16. Uh, that wasn't conceded. For a long, long fight. Women's rights. Well, I'm old enough to remember the Tory party. You know, you know, in my lifetime, women didn't have the same legal rights as men, you know, in terms of signing a, uh, an insurance contract or something like that, let alone uh, votes for women. Workers' rights, for God's sake. You know, when was the last time you heard a, a boss turn around and say, right, it's time for an election. We've got to choose who's going to be the manager this week. No, they exercise a dictatorship in the workplace. And as Marx explained in Capital, Capital by itself would drive workers to the point where they would work 24 hours a day for nothing. And that's different to previous social formations because the, 
landed nobility under feudalism had some concern uh, for its um, for its peasants. Certainly, if you were a slave owner, and I include the United States, okay, there's a bottom line profit and loss, but these are your property. You don't, you know, you don't casually say, um, well, they all die. I don't care. But under capitalism, that is what the capitalist can do. Uh, and that's been the history of British capitalism. All I, you know, just behind me, I've got uh, Engels's uh, condition of the working class in England. Look at the average life expectancy you know, in Bristol, something like 15, Liverpool, 17, Manchester, 18. So this is average. And of course, what they could do is replace these people by recruiting people from Ireland or the countryside. They didn't give a shit if people died. In the same way, uh, as I understand it, contractors who've uh, got workers to come in uh, to Qatar from Nepal, from Bangladesh, from India, bring these people in. And if they die from heat exhaustion, uh, that's a natural death. And um, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's not an industrial um, injury. And apparently workers' rights in Qatar have remarkably improved. Um, the word B and S uh, come to my mind. So, yeah, I do think uh, that uh, we are dealing with Western hypocrisy. And it's also just worthwhile taking into account how, how capitalism is so incredibly skillful at resisting something and then incorporating it and pretending it's almost invented it. And so we, we've now got a situation of where an invasion of uh, countries can be done in the name of women's rights. So Afghanistan, apparently, America was there in order to promote women's rights. Um, you know, um, gay rights. Well, God's sake, you know, when was there um, equality? It's, it's, it's incredibly recent. So the idea that this is built in somehow into the DNA uh, of the West is a piece of ideological nonsense. And I do find it uh, disgraceful uh, that uh, the press, the media and, and some of the left uh, play along uh, with this sort of um, uh, line. Um, it sort of reminds me in that sense, looking at history books, uh, but you know, about how Britain apparently took over India. Do you remember that? Uh, to stop, um, what was the name of the Hindu practice of throwing the, um, um, the widow on a pyre? It was Sak Sakti or something like that. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about, that this was part of Britain's civilizing uh, mission to stop the barbaric uh, Indians behaving to women in this disgraceful uh, way. Uh, this is nonsense. So yes, hypocrisy. That's all. Okay.